Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. This is the first episode in a two-part series with Jim Rickert, manager of the Prather Ranch in Northern California. You can find both episodes at artofrange.com. One of my goals for this podcast is to hear from people who have been practicing the art of ranching and have been successful. As I've said before, an art is really the application of a body of knowledge. We speak of someone practicing law or practicing medicine. If only ranching were rocket science, it would be simple, but it's much more complex than that. I personally think the idea of positive and consistent financial, environmental, and social outcomes from ranching is a decent way to define success. Now, not everything that one ranching family does is replicable in other places, in other biological and social contexts, but we still learn things that enlarge our thinking. Uh, One famous writer said that we should read promiscuously because that's good for our ability to think well and communicate well. Uh, I think we should listen to the stories of other people who have made a living producing the tangible things that humans need to live well. Uh, So with that long non-introduction, during which I said nothing at all useful about today's guest, I'll welcome my guest, Jim Rickert. Jim is a rancher in Northern California with some experience with innovation in what it looks like to be a rancher. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I was introduced to Jim through a mutual friend, and we've not met in person, but we have visited by phone a couple times about some of what the Prather Ranch does. Uh, Jim, your last name is not Prather. Can you do a little bit of self-introduction and tell us who you are and give a brief history of the ranch? Yeah. Uh, yeah, My name is Jim Rickert, and uh, the name uh, Prather Ranch uh, really comes from uh, a, a historical family that owned it years ago. There are no um, Prathers in the ownership uh, these days. The, la- the last Prather sold out somewhere around the late 1930s. So, um, but the family had owned it uh, starting back, the ranch starting back in the uh, 1880s, and they were there for an, uh, a number of years. Uh, my involvement started in the ranch in 1979. Uh, my wife and I were uh, had, had gotten out of graduate school and was uh, working a, as a uh, ag consultant and appraiser, uh, real estate appraiser on large agricultural properties. And uh, the uh, uh, I had the opportunity to. Uh, go for uh, a ride one of these days with a good close friend of ours that owns the uh, Shasta Livestock Auction Yard, Ellington Peak. And on the way, we were uh, shipping cattle and doing things. I would help out with him on some some uh, cattle things as well. Uh, we stopped at the ranch here and uh, the Prather Ranch. And in the process, uh, I met the uh, owner of the ranch, a man named Walter Rouse. Uh, Walt was uh, in the supermarket business and owned Ralph's Supermarkets in uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, he lived in Beverly Hills and uh, was just happened to be at the ranch the day we were there. And, and we had a nice visit. And I visited with some of the uh, 
employees and what have you. And then uh, about six months later, he called me up and said that, uh, asked me if I'd be willing to come and, and come take a look at the ranch and kind of do a uh, analysis. He uh, owned it for about 16 years and hadn't uh, was had yet to uh, break even on the operation and had dumped a lot of money into it. Hmm. Um, so that uh, led us to uh, coming up. I did a little uh, uh, consulting assignment and looked at it and sent it to him. And then a, a few weeks later, he called me up and said, you know, uh, I'd like to uh, uh, come up and visit with you in person. And we have some more talks. But he said, uh, I, I'd like to I'd like to hire you. And I said, huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I was 31 years old. My wife's four years younger than I am. And, and he came up and met us. And I'm not quite sure what happened. But next thing we knew, we had a job. Um, and that, that was the start of it all. And at, at the time, we, the, the ranch had, a, uh, had about 1,000 mother cows. And, and I took over in the fall. It was a, as we got in and, and mouthed the cows, there, were, uh, there was about 40% of the cows. It didn't appear to me like they'd, ever, that they'd had a calf in the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. And most of them had no teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, we, we shipped them off pretty quickly. And uh, kind of started uh, really concentrating uh, on trying to uh, improve the genetics there. We, had, we were scattered out in, uh, in another ranch in, in southern Oregon where we were shipping cattle there. And I looked around at the headquarters ranch and said, you know, if we sell that ranch up there, we can invest about half the proceeds in this uh, ranch. And... Uh, back in the headquarters ranch and improved irrigation and, and grow more feed. And then we grew on the ranch in Oregon. And so uh, we did that and, and started adding uh, and then expanded into hay production where we were, uh, we, at, at our peak of the operation, we, at one time we grew 19,000 tons of hay on, uh, about 5,000 acres of hay ground over in, uh, uh, in about five miles from our headquarters ranch. Hmm. You, you mentioned on the website that uh, Walter Ralph's dream was for the ranch to be productive and environmentally progressive. Uh, but it sounds like he wasn't able to put legs on that. What do you think he meant by that? Uh, Walt was a visionary guy. Uh, he really cared about the environment and uh, wanted to uh, develop a uh, a really great property that that we we could we could be very sustainable and and did things together and so we uh, uh, the good news was that he was uh, he was really committed to that and he just didn't have it it just didn't work for him the way we were originally doing it and uh, the previous management uh, had had issues and and it just. Uh, just didn't it just didn't the pieces didn't come together. I mean, it's just to give you the example of, you know, really 40 percent of the cows uh, hadn't had a calf in a year or two. Uh, that was uh, that was a good that was the starting point for some of this. And we had little black cows that, uh, you know, they they were maybe a thousand pounds. Uh, and and, uh, you know, we 
we had some we had some uh, genetic issues as well. So uh, he was, but he was very visionary, and he was willing. What he basically said to me is, uh, uh, part of being sustainable though is being profitable. And he said, Jim, I'm going to give you a chunk of money, and Jim and Mary, and we're you're you guys are in charge of of making this uh, go and. I'm gonna I'm gonna put money in your bank account and then you're on your own. I don't I don't want you to come back to me for more money and subsidize this. I did that for 16 years and I so you got to make it work. So I looked at the numbers and said, you know, I I can do this. And of course, when you're uh, 30 years old, you know, it's put me in, coach. I can do anything, you know, kind of thing. Just uh, well, it would. There were a few, there were more than mm-hmm. a couple of years along the way that. Uh, one way that I made it sustainable is by not paying Jim and Mary for that year and waiting till we had a better year. Yeah, uh, that happened along the way a time or two. Uh, but uh, it, we were, we were. He was very uh, willing to leave the ranch and the assets there, and and we had the, the opportunity to work with it. So we survived droughts and floods and fires and and all the various things that nature seems to throw at you along the way. Yeah, I think people outside of agriculture don't fully appreciate the necessity of being financially viable. Yes. But finances are typically what cause ranchers, whether a mom and pop family ranch with 200 cows or a corporate ranch, to quit. Yes. Yes. It, it, you know, I, I continued to be a, a, a real estate appraiser through these things, these times that we were, we were in. And, you know, by the, uh, early 1980s, everything was pretty well upside down. And uh, I remember uh, in the early 80s appraising uh, for the various banks acquired properties. And we did in Northern California and Southern Oregon, we did over 400,000 acres uh, in in, and just ranch properties everywhere and Mm. farms and orchards and you name it. And they were upside down and and uh, there was there was a point when you you know when you had eighteen percent interest rates and you had any kind of mm. debt uh, there there was no way it was the good the good operators were being taken out it was yeah. just uh, uh, hemorrhaged and we were fortunate enough those were some of the years when Jim and Mary didn't get paid uh, but uh, we were mm-hmm. fortunate to make it through. You mentioned in our pre-interview conversation that you did a master's program. Uh, and part of that was, a uh, some, some modeling. Yes. Uh, to model farm operations, financial operations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Was that a master's in ag business? I was a master's in ag economics from Purdue. I did my undergraduate work at, at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And then I went, uh, uh, to Purdue and, uh, at the time, I thought it was, you know, and it probably still could be, but one of the top ag, ag econ schools. And I thought if I'm going to be an agriculturalist and interested in agriculture, I need to know something. I'm a West Coast boy. Uh, I need to know something about uh, Midwestern agriculture because that's the that is the driver of agriculture. And and, uh, you know, we were I was fortunate there to arrive there when Earl Butts was still the department head. Uh, he left shortly afterwards. and. Uh, went to be head of USDA. And uh, uh, another one of my accomplishments was that uh, 
being an economics guy, uh, Earl hired uh, me and an, another grad student to uh, uh, take rental trucks. We would we would uh, on the weekends we hauled his furniture to the USDA hmm. uh, to his to his new home there in in uh, I think it was in Maryland, and I actually got a personal tour of the USDA building with uh, uh, Earl Butts, the uh, Secretary of Agriculture. That was yeah. kind of fun, and he was a good guy, and but. He saved a lot of money by having the grad students run uh, U-Haul trucks and bring his furniture to, <laughs> over. Uh, and the, what I my master's thesis was a uh, uh, a linear programming model uh, of a Midwestern farm, and it evolved into what was uh, a number of us contributed to this. Finally, became Purdue Model B, and basically, it's you know linear programming is the solving simultaneous equations, uh, and we were. Uh, the model we built, and and this was in the days with IBM punch cards, uh, the big mainframe computers in refrigerated buildings. Um, it was a, it was laborious. My cell phone probably can do better; uh, has more power than those big machines had in the day. Yeah, all these technicians. Uh, it was amazing. Um, white, gowned up in white uniforms and everything. It was so. Uh, uh, what we were doing was trying to, uh, break basically mathematically model a, uh, uh, a Midwestern farm. And then you would go through and test different types of equipment. And there, the, there was a lot of data available on planting dates and yields. And so you, 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 what you were trying to do is identify, uh, opportunities to make the farms more efficient. And uh, what an extra hour of planting time in the right day in the right month would uh, uh, would do to the bottom line. And was and we'd find that um, when we'd run these models, and we would go out and beta test them with the farmers, you know, and they'd go and we'd run them on their farm and do their thing on, on with the uh, extension service, and and we we take their exact data and and run it. And why, and I'd point out to the farmer and say, you know, if you uh, planted another two or th- an extra hour of planting on in say April or whatever the date was. Uh, this has a uh, shadow price of which is, shows what one additional unit is worth of like five hundred dollars an hour. And these people would blink their eyes and say, "Well, hell, I think I'm going to get my brother-in-law to come over and take his vacation in April, and we'll 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 gobble up a bunch of those five hundred dollar an hour deals uh, rather than the." Uh, and and we'll put we'll put the extra time planting at that time, and then then we would look at eight row equipment versus twelve row equipment versus sixteen row equipment, and 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 kind of model that and see uh, what does that do with all the different things that. It, it, so we we're all the way from the start to the finish, and trying to model all these these different things, and so it, we'd end up with these big trays of, of these IBM punch cards, and the number of factors in it were. Uh, I mean, there were thousands of different entries you were making for this this data. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was it was really kind of it was very interesting things, but it was it it was just at the front end of all this when the, all these uh, computer models were starting to happen. And you know, we would also do least cost feed rations. We were pioneering with that, and we did uh, uh, in a uh, in a plant in 
uh, Minnesota, we were we were looking at a process, meat processing plant, and we were trying to come up with what's the least cost combination of uh, materials to make a hot dog. And, you know, what? because you'd go to the, the prices changed every day and maybe there's the plates that bring one price mm-hmm. and you had to get the yields and you had to, you know, there was all these different uh, things to optimize. And it was, it was a, it was an interesting time. And we were right on the, I was right on the front end of all this. And, and I kind of basically left school thinking that um, we're never going to use this kind of stuff because it's so cumbersome to get at it. And then, you know, it wasn't that many years later, I, I owned a little Macintosh and, uh, and we started, uh, you know, with Multiplan and started doing some of these things and it, 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 it kind of would groan and it would do a few little simple things. And now, now it's like I say, my telephone probably has more power than that machine that we were using in, in Indiana. Yeah. It's interesting that you moved from <clears throat> running uh, these computer models on row crop farming and then eventually ended up ranching. Well, my, it, it was kind of in my blood, you know, uh, the, my family had, had uh, uh, depending on which side had been in, in California uh, and ranched on the West Coast, uh, you know, back from the 1850s through the early 1900s, depending on which group came along. And, and even, I don't know, maybe even uh, and even farming's a little bit in, in, uh, in my blood. Uh, I've always loved agriculture. And, you know, but my uh, earliest relative in, in North America was a Hessian soldier that uh, reportedly got captured in Trenton when Washington captured uh, across the Delaware. And he was offered to either be ransomed back to the Duke of Hess uh, or he could switch sides and they would, if the uh, colonials won, then he was going to, they were going to give him some land in uh, somewhere. Then he opted for that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's shift gears to talk about the beef operation that you're running now, but as, as a context to get there, uh, there is a, a, TEDx talk. I assume that was you giving the TEDx talk nearly a decade ago. Actually, it was my son. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he talked about an invisible contract between food producers and food consumers. And it seems like that's a useful thing to keep in mind as, as we continue talking about vertical integration and land stewardship, uh, because it seems like this invisible contract is driving some of that thinking and, and action. Uh, what what do you what did he mean by this invisible contract between producers and consumers? Well, you know, the producers have this obligation to produce clean, healthy, wholesome food uh, in a sustainable manner that's not doesn't degrade the environment. And and I, I tr- we as a family truly believe in that. Um on the other hand, the consumers uh, have a right to uh, ask us to do to produce food in that manner. And there are, you know, there are some food practices that and, and production practices that you don't feel too good about uh, sometimes that are that are USDA will allow you to do it. But, you know, uh, for example, in our processing room where we were we're breaking meat and we're cutting it. You know, I actually I'm better off having people who don't have much experience and we train them than I am experienced meat cutters. Um, because 
basically one of the first things I say is that while USDA might allow us to do things, and and these this is acceptable to go through the food inspection service, and we can sell this product. If you wouldn't feed it to your family, to your children, grandchildren, in my case, grandchildren and children, uh, then we shouldn't do it. Period. And so it's it it's a little different. It, it it's a little different take on it, but that is our uh, and people get that. When, I mean, the, and, and in fact, all the employees that are full time within our organization, they all get one part of their compensation is is beef. And so they 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 eat it, they feed it to their families. And we take a lot of pride in trying to do it in a really in a lot of ways. We're pretty old fashioned. We our little kill plant is uh, we don't have a hide puller. We skin them all by hand. Yesterday, we uh, we're not high output. We. We've never slaughtered an animal that we didn't raise in our herd. Um, and uh, we opened the plant in May of 1995. Uh, I personally work on the kill floor with the with the crew uh, because it's kind of a critical control point where I can see everything. And I look at a carcass and I can tell you real quickly if somebody's given a shot in the wrong place, if we have an abscess, if we have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're looking at the livers, you name it. Uh, you know, we're right there. It's like a roadmap for me. And I actually like to, uh, I bring the cattle up uh, to the uh, knockbox and everything myself. Personally, I, I like to do that just because I want to really minimize the stress. The animals are, are fed in, in pens. Uh, we do feed a mixture of rolled barley and rice bran and, and ranch raised hay. And we, we fatten them for a hundred to 150 days probably is the, is the general range. Um, our cattle are 1300. I try to shoot for 1350, 1400 pounders, seven, 750 pound, 800 pound carcasses. Uh, of course there's variations within all of that. And there's, you know, heifers are oftentimes a little smaller and what have you. And, and a typical kill day was, you know, we do about 22 beef, of which two or three are call animals and, um, uh, the balance of them are uh, are what we call fats, and we hand select them. We walk them from the pens where they've been fed, and with the peer group, they've been with their whole life. They born they're born together, and different uh, different herds that are separated around here, uh, and they they keep those same peer groups together, and then uh, uh, bring them over, uh, weigh them individually, and then uh, like I say, that's a on Monday. And yesterday was our kill day. We we yesterday we killed uh, twenty beef. Um, we've had a lot of trouble with COVID, and we're we're still kind of digging our way out of that uh, issue a little bit. So we had to slow down production a little bit. And then the animals, uh, I'll bring them up. Uh, we have a guy that knocks them on. I typically bone out the cow heads and uh, uh, do do some of the skinning. And that uh, you know it's, those are a couple of the worst jobs. And I'm kind of a big fan of uh, if I if I'll do the worst job, then it's easier for me to ask somebody to do the second worst job, and they and people respond pretty well to that. So when we're uh, dealing with the, the different problems in there, I'm I'm just right there with everybody. So pretty darn hands on that way. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think the term old fashioned is sometimes perceived in modern agriculture as a euphemism for 
uh, inefficiency and failing to uh, keep up with the times and has kind of a negative connotation. But old fashioned in your case sounds like uh, obeying the, the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And in a real way that has market value. If you don't have all these uh, middlemen between the producer and the consumer. Yeah, we, we've created a branded beef product and uh, uh, that is, was, you know, for example, we dry age the beef for two weeks. So the cattle that we killed yesterday, won't we won't start them. Well, actually, they'll start on the 13th just because we cut beef every day of the week. Uh, we'll start them on the 13th day and then, you know, it'll take uh, pretty well that next that whole week to go th- to, to cut all these beef up. Uh, and uh, yeah, describe dry aging for those that may not be familiar with this. Basically, we hang those carcasses for about uh, for about two weeks, and we hang them. In, we have a separate uh, cooler. We have a drip cooler, and then a staging cooler, and then we have this aging cooler in the back. And we keep the lights off. We keep it right at uh, 35, 36 degrees. Uh, the animals. Uh, just basically, you end up with a lot of evaporation. It's it's actually c- controlled decomposition is really what we're doing. And it mm-hmm. concentrates the flavor. We lose about 3% of the body weight of the carcass weight in this process. And it really enhances the flavors. It also causes the muscle fibers to relax quite a bit. So you end up with a, a tenderer product and you get a much more concentrated beef flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, big plants just can't do that. And I want to do niche things that people can't. And, and so it, it makes an, a completely different product. And if you start out with a good English crossbred, and we pretty well, our majority of our cattle are black baldies. And uh, we've, we've been heavily involved in trying to do selection. I mean, we have, we have a closed herd. We haven't purchased a female since the mid 1970s. And we discontinued buying live bulls uh, in 1990. So we we have a separate breeding program where we AI uh, a a group of uh, cattle, uh, cows that we think are our, our best in cattle, and uh, we we have a, a Hereford line and an Angus line for our, our our bulls that we produce from those cows, and we we uh, we will AI once and then uh, use cleanup bulls in our process. We end up with a calf crop typically from the, you know, somewhere between 92 and 95% calf crop uh, weaned from, from bred cows. And then, you know, we're probably five to 7% uh, that are open at, you know, in the fall when we'll keep a cow basically as long as she keeps having a calf. Right. Uh, we have a little grandma herd, we call them that we keep, keep around and, we're trying to, we actually, I actually have the opinion that longevity is pretty darn important in this business. And so we're trying to uh, even select quite a few heifers, even though they're a little smaller sometimes from these grandmas that have been around. And I've, you know, I had a, uh, a cow, we, you know, slaughtered it. Uh, she was what, uh, uh, 21 years old and she gave us 19 calves and uh, she came, brought one in every time. And she was kind of a nondescript, not you know, kind of a medium frame. Just she did, but she and she calved within two weeks of the every time hmm. she would. And and, mm-hmm. uh, and we like heifers out of out of 
out of out of cows like that. Uh, going back to the aging question, what, what is the standard practice? You know, in a, a a large industrial plant, the standard practice is to kill them. And as soon as you get them chilled out, you you put them in uh, in a big plant. You put them in a uh, uh, cryovac, and you ship them off. And you have a much different uh, thing that happens in a cryovac because you're in a anaerobic condition. And you have all these blood and water that kind of oozes out of them. You you open up a, a primal that comes out of uh, a uh, uh, I'll call it wet aging. Um, you you open that thing up, and sometimes it has some really foul odors. That, that one one part of it, and it it, it just is a much different. Uh, and there's a lot of fluids inside it uh, in the bags when you when you get a when you get a ribeye or you know, a, a loin or something like that. Um, where dry aging, you have a much, you have a much different, it, it's aerobic. And so it, it, you have a much different uh, smell. You have a, a much different, it, I think it changes the taste. I, in, fa- in fact, I even feel there's a nuance to the barley feeding that we do. It's, uh, it, it creates a more, in my, my opinion, a little more buttery uh, taste. Mm-hmm to the beef than, uh, say corn or, or, uh, something that has a lot of silage fed into it, you know, um, the dry hay and this combination with the rice bran and the rolled barley, uh, we think we have a, you know, it's kind of nuanced, kind of like you, you think about how you do, uh, wine and, you know, people have, we go to great descriptions of the different flavors in wine. And I, I frankly can't quite taste them, but, uh, uh, <laughs> You know, but you, you hear these yeah. uh, wine connoisseurs that go through some quite, quite uh, elaborate discussion. And but I, I, I do think there is a difference in, in beef that way. And, and the dry aging is a is a very old technique and it and big plants just can't do it. Can you imagine if you had a um, let's say you had a seven weight carcass and, and uh, you were going to lose three percent. So you lose three percent. uh so that's 20 some pounds and then that just 3, evaporates mm-hmm. and then you take that and you sell it for, you know, two and a half, three dollars a pound. I mean, you, you got $50 a head pretty easy in just yeah. moisture that evaporated and went. And then if you did 4,000 head in a day, now that's mm-hmm. a real number. Mm-hmm. That's a real number. Now, we we hope that. We can make up for that by charging a little premium price, and people appreciate the effort and the uh, the nuanced work we do. To uh, and, we, and we're we're real big on um, you know we most of our properties that we that we operate on have conservation easements on them, and we're in it for the long pull. And an awful lot of them are located, you know, depending on. I mean, we're over a two hundred mile radius, but of the ranching operations, and we, we take advantage of the fact that California has an alpine climate in the mountainous areas in the north part of the state, and it, and a Mediterranean climate in the uh, in the foothills, starting from Redding, California, and going down in the and as a Mediterranean climate down there. So we end up with it, when it rains, and we are suffering a massive drought. But when it rains, and it will rain again someday. Uh, when it rains, uh, I have times where I, I virtually, uh, you know, have fourteen hundred mother cows and and feed uh, to the to the mother cows feed two or three hundred tons of hay, and it's just 
to supplement a few groups before we can get them on a truck and ship them south. It's uh, yeah, we, when it does that, it's uh, it's pretty slick. Uh, when it doesn't rain, it there's a whole different story. Yeah, I'd like to talk about what that forage supply cycle looks like for you, but I wanted to go back first to the idea of flavor. You've got a you you finish your own cattle. There's a fair bit of uh, there's a lot of emotion out there regarding grain fa- grain finishing versus grass finishing. How do you finish cattle, and how do you think that that affects flavor? We grain finish our cattle with this mixture of roll barley. Now we don't max them out, you know, to where, uh, you know, where we're feeding a really hot ration, but we get up to 75, 80%, uh, you know, grain concentrate, you know, the grains in in our ration by the time we get to the end of the feeding period. Uh, But we end up, we don't end up with a lot of abscessed livers or anything like that, that you do when you're really feeding a hot mix. so we 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 lose a little bit of efficiency. We don't feed any uh, you know any anything else to that. I mean that's just it's an all natural mix that way. Uh, uh, people worry about GMO feed, and you know they talk about that. Well, I'm not aware of any GMO barley, so uh, we don't have that issue. We raise the hay ourselves, um, and there's no GMO rice, so the there's no GMO rice brand uh, out of that as well. Um, the I have years ago when my grandfather had a and my father and his brothers had a they both each each of them had a slaughter plant in a couple of different plants over the years. And in my grandfather's day, prior to World War II, grains were relatively expensive and they didn't feed very much grain at all, mm-hmm. and it was grass fed cattle. And in fact, our slaughter plant in in Sutter County, uh, you know, down towards Sacramento, uh, we had a slaughter plant before we had electricity and refrigeration. Now that was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would bring, we would slaughter one day, you know, one or one or two animals, bring it into town, chill them out. In the summertime, there wasn't much chill out, and uh, people would come buy the meat, and they would buy. What was exposed? If you got there at the wrong time of the day, you got the neck. And if you got a little later in the day, you could get, uh, you might get, uh, you know, a, a New York or a ribeye. And if you mm-hmm. were well late in the day, uh, you got a rounds and, and, uh, or they, uh, corned beef, you know, or salted beef and they would, uh, store it that way. Uh, so it was, uh, but, in visiting with my grandfather and father and all this, there in the Mediterranean climate, we had some really nice, and I can get them now, some really nice grass-fed beef in May and June. When the when basically what's happened is those grasses, those annual forages, which were mostly annuals in that Mediterranean climate, mm-hmm. uh, they're maturing and they and basically they have the seed heads. And those animals will select the seed heads and they'll select for those and whether rye grass or oats or something, you know, wild oats or something like that. They'll select for those seed heads mm-hmm. and you end up 
Uh, we've had some beautiful, I mean, literally choice animals that I've brought off. You know, I've kept some around and they, and what's works really well is I have a heifer that lost a calf and we'll, we'll leave those heifers out there. And, it, and when that feed turns and they'll just, they can just get gobby fat. Um, and we'll bring them in and, and they'll eat every, I won't even feed them. You know, I mean, we'll, and, and it's amazing, white fat and just beautiful animals, but it's, there's a little window. And then there's, a, you got to have some age on the animals. You can't, you can't get that on a, you know, a 15 or 18 month old animal. You got to have a little maturity in it to get them to start fattening. You, you can push right. them with grain and get them to fat, but you can't, you can't do it with a young animal uh, on just off of grass. And then you get, uh, then we have a window in the fall in our alpine climate where we can do it again. And, and I always ask the grass fed people, I said, what do you do in January, February, and March? And what do you do? And, and, and most of the time they just say, well, we don't produce any at that time of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we, how do we make a competitive business out of a, uh, with a slaughter plant if, if you have to lay the plant off and the employees off for three months a year or six mm-hmm. months, you know, it, there, I don't know how you make a, a sustainable model. And another important thing is to have products that aren't so expensive that Walter Rouse always believed in this, that we need to be selling pr- products at prices that ordinary people can afford. In fact, we sell one beef a week out of our plant here and it's to the local folks. I mean, we try to, it, you have to come pick it up at the plant and we, we try to gear it for our community here. And we have a really, you know, almost poverty. I mean, we, there's probably, you know, our unemployment rate in this little community we're in is runs 20 to 25% typically. Hmm. So it's a really impoverished area. And, uh, uh, actually jobs here at the ranch are pretty coveted for the community. Um, and that, uh, anyway, we sell that, uh, and this is, this is all in cryovac, uh, individual cuts, uh, boneless, you get a quarter of the beef, and we charge uh, $4.99 a pound. That means you get the, for the price of good quality uh, uh, hamburger, you get the fillets and New York's and roasts and everything else, and it's all boneless. Mm-hmm. So it's a, and we have about a, three to six month waiting list on it from, and, and people usually, I mean, I've had the same customers and I've had them for in some cases, 20 years and they order one and they say, put me on the list for, you know, six months from now. Um, now we charge a lot. We charge quite a bit more for the individual steaks and stuff that's sold in the farmer's markets in the Bay area. That's a, that's a much different clientele there. And, you know, hamburgers, $10 a pound and, Fillets are thirty down there, so it's uh, but that it's much more expensive to deliver to those people and to right. go through the process of getting there and and uh, you know selling an individual steak to someone in uh, uh, you know one of the one of the communities Danville or one of those communities down in the Bay Area is, is or San Rafael is 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 a, it's amazing how much it costs to do business in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, you alluded to it just now, but we haven't talked about it directly. Uh, how do you conduct direct meat sales for the rest of the product that comes to your plant? Well, we and have if you don't a mind saying of outlets. Uh, we have uh, three 
small uh, meat shops slash grocery stores that we sell carcasses to, and they do they break them from there. We have a uh, wholesale distributor uh, down in the Oakland area that we sell to, and they uh, further hand, take meat out to restaurants and and that sort of thing. And then we have a farmer's markets presence, which we've had for close to 30 years in the Bay Area. And we have a young couple that uh, they homeschool their kids and they uh, uh, go to all the markets. And this this family uh, does the marketing there. And they're just wonderful folks. And they, they've they got it. So they work all weekends and then they have to take a couple of days off, take a couple, couple of days off in the middle of the week. Um, mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's fun to watch the I mean, some of these I mean, the, the oldest now is Dane's like uh, 12 years old, but he'll he'll wait on customers and count change back to them. And I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's fun to to uh, uh, go down and, and participate in that. For ranchers that don't want to own a slaughter plant on their own, do what do you think about people? pursuing direct meat sales on their own, you know, going through a, uh, a custom cutter and, or trying to get into a USDA plant that'll release a carcass. What do you think about people that, that don't own a plant trying out direct meat sales? What are some of the pros and cons of that? Well, lots of folks have uh, tried that. And, and, uh, you know, I remember, uh, I think it's Dan Macon that, that, uh, one of the U- UC Davis, uh, farm advisors up in, I think, Placer County. He says, you know, I have a stack of business plans for direct marketing that's about two feet tall that come from all <laughs> these different producers. Mm-hmm. And he said, and then I have another stack that has the ones that are still in business five years from now. I've been in business for five years. And then I've got one lonely one out there on the end that's been there for over 20 years. And he says, that's you, Jim. All uh, right. Uh, it's, it's a tough gig. To the slaughter plants are a long ways away. They're they're really busy now, and so you end up, you know, it's a tough thing to haul six beef to a slaughter plant two hundred miles away, get them killed, get them cut up, and then come back and pick up the meat. And I know there was one guy who was doing this, and he lived up. He was about a uh, hundred miles away from the kill plant. He would haul down this five or six. He would then then he would pick it up and drive it to Los Angeles and sell it. Hmm. And man, oh man, unless you value your time at about ten cents an hour, yeah, uh, I don't know how that works because you don't have any volume of business. And you know that it. Another issue for custom plants is is the stress on the animals prior to slaughter. It's always been a big deal to me to. In fact, that's why I that's why I even move the animals up personally. I want to handle those animals really, really quietly and really, really gently. I want them to not be stressed out. I don't want uh, all of the uh, stress hormones that come it, and and which is just inherent in in bringing animals and and they get into strange locations and the strange water and smells and everything else. Our cattle are, mm-hmm. are walked over to the kill floor. They're they've been in the and they they're drinking out of water that's the same water they've been drinking for the last three or four months. 
they're with the cattle that they were there. There's no strange cattle with there. They're, they're with their peer group of cattle. They're, they're herd mates. And so everything's, if, if I do it right, they're not stressed out at all. Um, and, and then they, you bring them in, you, you lead them up. Uh, we even have a quote from, uh, our old acquaintance, uh, from way back, uh, Temple Grandin above the knockbox about, you know, giving them a little moment of silence and, uh, we're still taking their lives, but we try real hard to make this an unpleasant process. I mean, we're still taking an animal's life, but make it as, 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 orderly as possible with the least amount of stress on the animal. I see no, no reason to uh, abuse an animal and then take its life. It seems to me like we, we have some, we owe that animal the respect of uh, trying to do this in the very best way possible. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I, and that really is, people are really receptive to that. And we've been through this, the certified humane process we did we were the, the first large herd in the uh in their system and uh they audit us every year and and you know we we try to be real responsive to all of that i mean we we want to you know give these animals the absolute best life possible and one bad day yeah i i like that i suspect that a lot of vegetarians are vegetarians not because they believe beef in moderation is really bad for people, but because of some real and perceived abuses of, of animals. Absolutely. And, and we, we actually see that a lot in our, uh, in, in our, uh, customers uh, that, that is that, that we have a lot of people we, we had had a couple of books written about some of the pro there was a gal who was, uh, from Berkeley who her, she was she was a vegetarian and she was having a lot of health issues. And so she uh, went to her doctor. Doctor said, you need to eat meat. And she's been a, she was a writer. So she contacted us and said, uh, you know, I've been doing research on meat and. I need to eat meat, but I need to get it. I, I just don't feel right about how these animals are raised. Could could I come up and would you show me everything you do? And we did. And I, you know, took a, a bit of a risk on this. Uh, in fact, we're pretty transparent. If you want to come and, and watch slaughter, uh, I mean, I'm not going to probably bring the PETA people, but, uh, you know, anybody who takes a reasonable interest in it, uh, I'm, I'm pretty transparent about it. Come up and watch us and, and we're, we're working hard to do this right. Mm -hmm. And she came up, we went through the whole process all the way from tagging newborn calves. And we have an ISO 9000 compliant cattle herd. So we, we have a whole, we have a whole routine. We have SOPs and everything else that has to do with another part of our business and the biomedical part. But, uh, uh, we, we brought her through the whole thing. She was out and, and rode around with us and tag cat, tag calves and, and, uh, then went through, we were shipping cattle and took about the time she was here to some other pastures and she went to different places. And then she came up here and, and, uh, watched the, the, uh, the whole process. And then when we get done with, with the kill day, uh, we actually, uh, uh, the whole kill crew along with me and, and the processing crew, we take one day a week. We, I have, uh, we have a meal prepared for us and we all eat a meal together. 
and uh, just break bread and and uh, just and and thanks for their all their participation. It gives me a good chance to visit with everybody uh, directly and find out if there's any issues. And yeah. you know, people are pretty relaxed, and we just we finish our day's work and. They, you know, we start early and and uh, work hard, and and then everybody can take the afternoon off. Is uh, it's in the kill crew. Um, so anyway, um, she went through the whole process, and well, that particular day we were having hamburgers, and uh, we barbecued hamburgers, and she looked around and she had a hamburger with us. Mm-hmm. And wow. that was the first meat she'd eaten. In a lot. But she she bought she she saw what was happening and what we did and how we cared for the animals. And we truly, really do believe in. I mean, it's 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 good business, but it's also good morals to to if, if we're entrusted with these animals and and is to take care of them and do it properly. I mean, it's right. it seems to me it's just apparent, but but sometimes right. these big systems are really difficult to accomplish that even with the best intentions i don't know how people can slaughter 4000 head in a day and and and, and all these people and the 80% <laughs> turnover i read about in the big plants i mean we have people who have been with us for 20 years yeah uh i i i, I my hats off to them we we should have more food safety issues uh, they they really do a wonderful job on with a difficult situation. This concludes the first part of my two-part interview with James Rickard. If you have not already, please subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice to make sure you don't miss the conclusion of my interview with Jim in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.